0: It's a pleasure to be back with you again. It has been, I believe, at least 10 years since the last time we were here by ourselves. We've been here a couple of other times with another missionary, sharing the day with them. And uh, on a couple of other occasions, you had special uh, anniversaries of some kind, and we came back to help celebrate that. But We appreciate the opportunity to have you to ourselves today. As I look out at you, I recognize some faces, but my, what has happened to you? You have gotten so old, and I don't understand how it's happening to you and not to us. And then I'm also thrilled to see so many new people here. People that we've never had the privilege of meeting before. And today we look forward to the opportunity of getting to know you a little bit. Younger families, oh, it's great to see that. What a privilege to stand here and think back over the years of what God has done here in this congregation. I have great respect for you. those of you who have been here for years and years. Every time we hear your names, we think faithful. And I trust that the newer folks who have joined you will prove themselves to be just as faithful. Uh, We're in the middle of a month-long trip away from home. We left home on the 7th, I believe, the 7th of September. We won't get home until the evening of the 6th of October. We're traveling entirely around the United States, making a loop. We have preached in a different church in a different state every Sunday during the trip. We have taken a little bit of time for vacation as well. We've stopped in Palo Duro Canyon State Park, just south of Amarillo, Texas, and then Rocky Mountain National Park up in Colorado, the Grand Teton National Park, and Yellowstone National Park up in Wyoming. And then we've stopped a few times and hiked a little bit and trying to get out of the car for a few hours because during this four-and-a-half-week trip, Besides speaking in churches, visiting donors, visiting friends and relatives along the way, we've counted up the number of hours we've spent in the car. And in the end, by the time we get home next Saturday, we will have driven about 120 hours. That's three solid work weeks of driving in four and a half weeks. But somehow we feel like we're getting a little bit of a vacation. We're just away from the normal routine and doing some things we've wanted to do for a long time. We ended up Friday evening, just a couple of days ago now, in Wheaton, Illinois, for my 50th high school class reunion. Now, others had already arrived on Thursday night, We didn't show up for that $45-a-plate special dinner and program. So we arrived just in time Friday for the tour through the high school. And as we walked into the lobby of this renovated high school, all I saw were old people there. And I said to Sally, I don't think this is our group. These people are all old. (laughs) And then she said to me, Larry, We're old, too. Uh, Before I forget, we did just come from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and both of my brothers, Tim and Tom, wanted especially for me to pass along their greetings to those of you who might remember them. And we also visited my younger brother, Dale, down in the Dallas, Texas area that was near the beginning of the trip. So I'm sure he would want me to pass along his greetings as well. Before we get into the scriptures, which, by the way, will be in Romans chapter 5, I want to comment about Tim and Sandy Fink's departure from the pep team. I know that you've just recently heard from them. And I know that you are supportive of their move to become the director of Bibles International. This was a hard move for Tim to make. First of all, I want you to know that before he accepted that position, he had to be recommended by somebody to the president of Baptist Missions. We were on a phone call with the president one day talking about other things, And I asked him if he had found somebody for that position yet. He said, no, we've investigated several possibilities, and it just hasn't proven to be God's will. So my wife spoke up. She said, I know somebody that would be perfect for that. Tim Fink. And immediately after she recommended his name... I lent my support to that recommendation. In fact, I want you to know that we're very supportive of this move. Tim then was approached by the president of Baptist Mid-Missions. Blame it on Sally. We have taken a hit in our team. We love Tim and Sandy. They were undoubtedly our strongest team members. And I had already said to some Baptist Midmissions that if something were to have happened to me, Tim would have been the obvious next director for the pep ministry. We had already seen that kind of leadership ability in him. And he is the kind of leader that Bibles International needs right now. They need somebody with a pastor's heart, somebody with a gracious leadership style. Now, the man who took over as the interim director there, he brought great healing to the team. He restored a spirit of teamwork. And Tim is that same kind of leader who will pastor the staff and lead the staff. So I want you to know that we were the ones who recommended him, and we continue to be supportive of that move, even though it means that we have lost uh, a great deal for our team, for the sake of God's work. We value our friendship, and we'll continue that friendship, even while he is at Bibles International. We've already officially approved him, As an adjunct teacher for the PEP team, PEP ministry, which means that we trust him. And any time one of us is not available to go, we can approach Tim as one of our official adjuncts and suggest that he might consider a certain trip. However, we're wanting to protect Tim so that he doesn't kill himself. He finds it hard to say no. And pastor was just telling me, in India, people were saying to Tim, well, can we get you to come back again soon? And Tim said, well, yes, we'll work on that. Uh-huh. Well, Tim has already agreed that I will have the final say in whether or not he will take on a pep teaching assignment, even where it combines with other Bible's international responsibilities in a certain country. And we're going to limit him to only those countries where B.I. has an interest so that he can accomplish two things on the same trip. He wanted to keep all of the former countries that he was traveling in and teaching in. But that would be additional trips because Bibles International isn't in many of those countries. So we're going to try to manage this. We'll be working together with the administration at Bibles International trying to give him the opportunities that he wants to teach. He he craves the teaching opportunities. But we're going to try to work with the BI administration so that we don't overburden him. And when he goes on a certain trip, we will often have another teacher with him who can carry the bulk of the teaching load as necessary to free him to do the Bibles International things that he's also there to do. So I just wanted you to know from our hearts how we're viewing his new ministry at Bibles International and how we're going to try to work with him because we love him. To protect him. This evening, we will have the bulk of the time in the evening service. And I know that some of you will not be with us at that time because you're going to be involved in youth ministries or children's ministries. We understand that. We respect that. For the group of adults who will be with us, we're going to take all of our time this evening to focus on our ministry and especially on some of God's special blessings so that you can praise God with us and also on some of the new things that are happening. There are some new initiatives which are, in fact, adding a little bit to the burden of our responsibility, even as we are losing one of our major team members. So I want to talk to you about those new initiatives and help you to understand something more than what we can share in our letters. That last song we sang this morning, Pastor Nate, you wouldn't have known this, but it fits perfectly with the message for the text that I've chosen this morning. I'm preaching through the book of Romans. And Romans, of course, is a book that concentrates on a number of the major doctrines. It's one of the couple greatest doctrinal books in the New Testament one being Romans and one being Hebrews. And I love teaching through those, those books in some of the opportunities I have in pastor's conferences or in pastoral training schools overseas. And so I'm preaching now, actually, through the book of Romans uh, as I'm moving from one church to another. And i I found these words to be a great summary For the book of Romans, uh, not in me, I'm reading the last couple of scores, just the first verse. Oh, God, be merciful to me. Apart from his mercy, there's no hope for us. You understand that, don't you? I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. The book of Romans is is a majestic book which declares so plainly for us the sinfulness of man and the righteousness available for us only through the grace of God by our act of faith. Now, in the introduction to the book of Romans, Verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, we read about Paul's identity. He's not at all ashamed to say, I'm the one who wrote this book. I know this is a time of persecution, but I declare to you plainly, I'm the one who wrote this book. Yes, I accept that I'm a leader of the church. And if you're going to persecute the other believers, then you're looking at me too. He was, in effect, putting a target on his own back by identifying himself. He talks about his message and then his desire to go further than he's ever gone before. Chapter 1, verse 18, and through chapter 3, verse 20. Sin is the theme. The Gentiles are guilty. Oh, but you Jews, you're also guilty, equally so. The whole world is guilty, he summarizes. And now in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, he talks about the provision of salvation. We need God to do something to save us because we're sinners. And so in chapter 3, through the end of the chapter Salvation is provided for us. I I read to you one summary verse there, chapter 3 and verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And there's a great deal of emphasis placed on that. It's not by the law. It's not by works. It's not by any good thing that you can do. It's only by God's grace. By believing that Jesus paid the penalty for us. In chapter 4, salvation is illustrated. It's one of the most definitive texts in all of Scripture that makes it clear how an Old Testament person was saved. It says it over and over again. Abraham believed unto righteousness. And there are a couple of points that are made there in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Abraham was justified by faith before ever he was circumcised. Circumcision wasn't even a thing yet. He was already declared righteous by faith. And then in verses 13 through 22 of chapter 4, there's this second lesson. Abraham received the promise of descendants by faith. It had nothing to do with his being part of a special people that God was claiming for himself in the future. But it was by faith he accepted that God was going to make of him a nation before there ever was an Israel. So salvation is provided. Salvation is illustrated By going all the way back to Abraham. And Abraham is the theme all through chapter 4. And the key verse there is in chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now exactly what his faith looked like at that time. It's hard for us to imagine today. Because in fact he could not look back on the finished work of Christ. He couldn't place his faith in that one Christ, knowing information about him. Even most of the promises given through Scripture of that coming Messiah, the coming Deliverer, he never had access to those Scriptures when he believed. But he believed in God and a God who would provide for salvation. He would make a way for his people to be declared righteous. Salvation is explained now in chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. That's the entire chapter. But I'm going to focus on the first eight verses. And... The theme verses, which I'm going to read to you right now, are verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. This is chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you remember the words of that song? Again, my only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you, as we sing those words of worship to the Lord Jesus. Well, let's go through this text as we're dealing with this explanation of salvation. And let's rejoice in what God has provided for us, all all who will believe. The point is made earlier in this book that God is righteous not only in his character, but in the way he provides salvation. Number one, he offers this salvation freely to all equally. All are declared equally under sin, and he offers now his salvation to all equally. There's no injustice in the way he provides his salvation. Now, we come to chapter 5 and verse 1. We're looking in the first five verses at a list of benefits that are given to us through Christ Jesus. First of all, justification by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, having been justified by faith you understand that this is a theme that has already been explained, and it's a justification that is already possessed. Now, all of the following list of benefits in Christ Jesus all seem to assume that, in fact, you first of all are justified by faith. Having been justified by faith... We have, and it starts the list of additional benefits we enjoy in Christ. Peace with God is the second one. One is justification by faith. Absolutely. Secondly is peace with God. Now, you have to be careful when you're reading in the scriptures about peace. Is it talking about peace with God That is, we've been reconciled to God. We who were first enemies of him because of our sin, now we've been brought nigh, we've been brought near to him. We've been reconciled to him. That's peace with God. Because we were enemies, now we're family. And we have to be careful not to confuse peace with God with this other phrase that we read about, The peace of God. The peace of God is something that we receive. It's something that's internal. It's something that helps us to cope with the difficulties and disappointments of life. It is his peace and calm, his steadiness in us as we face the difficulties that come along. uh, the, The difficulties that we all face. Peace with God. We have peace with God, I read, in the end of verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of verse 2, there's another one listed. Another benefit that we enjoy is access to God's grace. Through whom, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Well, God's grace is a wonderful thing, but if it's only something theoretical and something that we can talk about from a distance, then it hasn't really benefited us personally, has it? Oh, but this is a grace into which we have access. God's grace is ours by experience. We have entered into his grace, his unmerited favor. That goodness of God that we could have never enjoyed by our own merits. I go on into the last part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope of God's glory. Now hope here, you have to understand in scriptural terms, it is usually referring to a confident anticipation of something in the future that has been promised to us a confident anticipation we read a lot in the scriptures about the glory of god one day we'll stand in his glory in his presence and will experience his glory all through eternity And that's something that we look forward to. It's something that by faith we claim for our future. Now, there's a sense in which we enjoy God's glory today. And we want to contribute to his glory by giving him glory through all that we do. But here I believe it's talking about something yet in the future. And we know that that is ours It's a promise we claim. And then we come to verses 3 and 4. Appreciation of tribulations. Do you realize that that's a benefit that we enjoy through Jesus Christ? We can look at tribulations in a whole different way than an unbeliever can. All he can think about is how terrible it is. And if we will learn the lessons that God is wanting us to learn and if we come to understand what the Bible tells us about tribulations, they are for our good and for God's glory. And we can appreciate them in a way that no unbeliever can. That's a gift from God, because one way or the other, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you're going to face tribulations in this life. Life is hard. What a blessing to face those tribulations with the Lord Jesus, with God by our side, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and knowing that God has a good purpose for those things. Now, the attitude is described in the beginning of verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Here, the attitude is described. Glory in tribulations. Wow. We somehow come to appreciate these things that nobody else in the world would ever appreciate. In fact, this is one of the greatest ways that we give glory to God. It's one of the greatest ways that we can impact other people around us who are not yet believers. This is one of the things that will shock them so much that they will be caused to think, why, why do we react this way to tribulation? This is one of our best opportunities to give testimony to what the Lord Jesus has done in our hearts. So the attitude is described here. We should glory in these tribulations. I just say it this way. We should come to appreciate these tribulations, instead of just feeling sorry for ourselves. That the results of these tribulations are identified in the last part of verse 3 and into verse 4, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, patience. It might be translated in other translations. And perseverance itself produces character. And character produces hope. So God is working in us for our good to bring us more and more into conformity to his Son. And we develop patience, we develop character, and we develop hope that always is looking ahead to what God has promised to do in our lives and in our eternities. Confidence of hope is another point, another benefit, as we come to verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. No, in fact, we have such confidence that we look forward to what God has promised to us, and there's no wavering there. There's no room for wavering as you lie on your sickbed, there's no room for wavering as you come to your final moments of breath. No, you have a confident hope. You know that hope does not disappoint. And the experience of God's love in the end of verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We've received the Holy Spirit, and now He has shown us more and more of the love of God. And we come to recognize God's love. We experience His love. It is ours. It is for us. Now, in the next verses, through the end of the chapter, we come to the the subject of substitution by Christ. What we've looked at in the first five verses is benefits through Christ. And now in the next verses, and we will probably go just as far as verse 8, Substitution by Christ. Now, it's really interesting. If you read through the rest of this chapter, you find over and over and over again, Christ is contrasted to Adam. Adam's works are contrasted with the works of Christ. What Adam produced through his life passing along the sin nature to all of us through all of history. Yes, what he has produced through Adam's works is all about death. But in contrast, what Christ has produced for us is life and the enjoyment of life and a confidence in an eternity with him. Now, those contrasts are repeated over and over again with slightly different wording. And to produce an analytical outline to fit every phrase into its context in a a full outline is really a little bit of a chore through the rest of this chapter because it just seems to repeat the same kind of thing over and over and over again. But let's look especially at verses 6 through 8. First of all, the statement about our substitute in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, in this statement about our substitute, there, there are two parts of the verse. The first part of the verse talks about the circumstances. Yes, it was because of man's inability that Jesus took our place. We couldn't do it by ourselves. So what it says, we were still without strength. We had no ability to do anything for ourselves to somehow qualify us before God, to make us righteous, to impute to our account the righteousness of God, to be a propitiation for our sin, that is, to be a satisfaction legally, of God's righteous demands. Oh, these big words, they're thrown around here all through this chapter righteousness and sanctification and imputation and propitiation. <laughs> but all of these words have great, rich meaning for us as believers. The circumstances. First, because of man's inability. And then secondly, it talks about the right time. The time that is due. In due time. And this simply means at the right time, according to God's timetable. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, you know that he didn't die because of his own sin. He died because of our sin. He was... Paying the price so that before God we could be justified. The substitution itself is referred to in the end of verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Now there are three questions that are answered here in this short phrase Who did something for us? Who? You, You can answer for me. Christ did. What did he do for us? He died for us. And he died for whom? For us. Now, you immediately jumped to that identification to say us. Why do you say for us? According to the Bible, what does it say? For the ungodly. Well, okay, that's us. (laughs) It's not hard to make that leap, is it? Especially in the context of chapter 3, where it has said so plainly that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us have measured up. So all of us were in an equally bad position where none of us could attain righteousness. So Christ died for us, the ungodly, so that we could be reconciled to God. What a wonderful thing. Now, we come to verse 7. Verse 6 talked about the statement of a substitute. Christ died for the ungodly. The unlikelihood of a substitute is in verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Now, Don't think that there is a contrast here between righteous and good. In fact, we might have chosen to use the same word in each case. It's saying that it is unlikely that even for a righteous man or a good man, anybody would be willing to substitute himself and die in the place of that person. The second part of the verse goes on to say, yet you might... Possibly, there is a greater likelihood that for a good man, a righteous man, one might even dare to do that. Both of them are repeating the same thing, one from a negative standpoint and one from a positive standpoint. It's very unlikely, but oh yes, there's the faint possibility that somebody might dare for that righteous person, that good person. So sometimes we do hear about people who throw themselves in front of somebody else to spare them a bullet. Or somebody gets in the way to protect an innocent uh, person who is unable to protect himself. But we're just looking at, at the unlikelihood that someone, that even any of us here, would be willing to step forward... Because we know the reputation of somebody. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. And he shouldn't have to die. Yes, please take me instead. Unlikely, but possible. In verse 8 now, the motivation for our substitute. Why did he choose to do that then? For somebody who was ungodly. We're not talking about a righteous person here. We're not talking about a good person. We're talking about people who are all desperate sinners. And Jesus stepped forward and he said, I'll do it for them. Please let me. The motivation for our substitute. First of all, in the beginning of verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Yes, the demonstration of God's love. The fact that Jesus did this for us is proof proof beyond any doubt that God does genuinely love you and me. The demonstration of God's love. Secondly, the extent of God's love in the middle part of verse 8. In that while we were yet sinners, the fact is, That in contrast to verse 7, none of us are good people. None of us are good or righteous men. Our righteousness today is only in the fact that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. But here we're talking about that moment when Jesus stepped forward to offer himself to provide for the salvation of sinful man. There wasn't one good person out there for whom he should have been willing to do that. So, thank God for God's love and for his son's willingness to put himself in our place. The extent of God's love, even for somebody who was yet ungodly. Sinners. And then the action in God's love, the last part of verse 8, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he did for us. That was his action to prove his love. Now, you have heard this over and over again. God's kind of love, this love that, according to New Testament Greek, is referred to as agape love, This is a love beyond a regular brotherly love or a a love that shows kindness to people, a a feeling of of, uh, some sort of a bond. Now, God's love, agape love, is something that goes beyond a feeling. And a love even between a husband and wife should demonstrate this kind of sacrificial love. Love that isn't only a feeling, love that acts, love that shows itself by doing something for the benefit, for the well-being of the other. That's God's kind of love. And even though we were still sinners, Christ said, I'll do that because this, this is the kind of love God shows Well, I'm going to stop there in the text. I want to ask you about your kind of love to the unbelievers. We were talking in Sunday school this morning in Pastor Pete's class about how we are to demonstrate God's love to the unsaved world around us. And so seldom are we guilty of doing something above and beyond what would be normally expected of neighbors. And the fact is that so often we'll take a stand for Christian values. We'll stand up for Christ and, and for righteous values in our nation. But so seldom... Do we do it in a truly Christian way? We show instead our anger, our judgment of the world, even in the things that we would write or the things that we would comment on. And the unsaved people around us, they say, well, they say they love us, but in fact, we haven't seen it. Now, this doesn't mean that we should stop taking a stand. But how do we take that stand? With what kind of an attitude? What kind of a spirit? What kind of love can we show even in that stand that we take toward others? And this is probably one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life. But instead of working on that point, we're typically just very cloistered and very judgmental, talking about we and they. And we are always right about everything, and they are always wrong about everything. And I've heard Christians railing on unbelievers, and even in their voices and in their facial expressions, they're obviously angry and hateful. Now, the classic illustration not to say that the person who did this would be a true born-again believer, is the person who takes a stand against abortion, and so he stands outside an abortion clinic with a gun, and he'll shoot the doctors as they come out the door. Oh yeah, that's, that's the Christian way to deal with it, isn't it? Even our witness to other people How do we demonstrate our love to them so that we warrant a hearing from them? Now, I'm a missionary. My wife with me, of course. Uh, We're missionaries, and believe it or not, we're going on 43 years now with the mission. I remember back when my parents were getting ready to retire from the field they had had a few difficult years facing some really serious opposition in the central african republic and my dad said i want to retire before other people want me to retire maybe a good lesson for all of us to think about and to guard ourselves and our our spirits and our actions as we get older and moving toward that that time that we will have to retire. And I remember we were just starting out in missions as mom and dad were retiring. I had been out there short term with them, but they actually left the field to retire before we went together as full-time missionaries. Never even overlapped with them on the same field. Because I was born a little bit later in mom and dad's lives. And I remember thinking at the time, 40 years Dad had been a missionary. How does a person ever get to 40 years? And then we were at 30, and then 32, and 35. Maybe I'll get to 42. I mean, to 40 also. <clears throat> and then 39, and oh, I'm almost there. 40, 42 now. Now, the mission does have a retirement policy. I'm 67 now, and the retirement policy insists on retirement by our missionaries at the age of 70. And that's to keep fresh ideas and a faithful, effective ministry continuing on the field when perhaps as we get older we start fading a little bit in our ability to carry on. But they do make exceptions. If you jump through several hoops, then year by year you can extend this. And and I respect this policy. I really do. So I'm going to have to jump through those same hoops in order to get the exception. One is our family doctor's agreement that physically I can still accomplish what I need to in the course of my work. The second factor is the home pastor, the home church, the sending church has to agree that they still are willing to authorize us. They still believe that we can be effective. And the third thing is that our mission administrator who oversees our work has to believe that the ministry that we're involved in is a strategic work which would suffer if we were to step away. So uh, I respect those exceptions that they're giving. But I, I can say that we enjoy great respect from our missions administration. And the president himself was the one who said to me, Larry, don't you dare think of retiring at 70. So I, I think we have job security for a few more years. But, you know, even as a missionary, we have to be careful of the way we react the way we re- interact with people. And I have found several times recently, coming through an airport in particular, and standing in the lines and dealing with service people uh, where they're not really understanding or respectful, I find myself sometimes now more and more frustrated with them. And sometimes I don't respond verbally or with a proper spirit in a way that really reflects Christ in the best way. And I told my wife one time, I came back from a trip and I I had had a disappointing interaction with somebody in the airlines. And I said to Sally, if I cannot continue to handle my attitude and my words better than I did on this trip, then it's going to be time for me to stop. So I think I have dealt with that matter. I think I have uh, gotten control of myself again, but I have to be careful of that. And so do you. And I'm going to say that even you younger people, you need to be careful of this kind of thing too. But I'm being transparent with you. We all have to be careful the way we demonstrate Christ's love to others. Dear Father, I pray that you will accomplish your work in our hearts through your word and through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word which teaches us how to live. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who is present in our lives to first of all convict us, And point us in the right way. Help us to live lives that truly bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.